We'll hear argument first this morning in case 09868, Wall versus Coley. Mr. Weissman. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue before the Court today is whether a State Court sentence reduction motion, which is a pure plea for leniency, qualifies as, quote, an application for post-conviction or other collateral review within the meaning of 28 U.S.C. Section 2244 D2. The State respectfully argue that there are at least three reasons why such term as collateral review refers only to a legal challenge, refers to those recognized post-direct appeal applications in which constitutional, jurisdictional, and other such fundamental errors may be raised. First, as this Court has said, it is presumed, Congress is presumed to have known the language that this Court uses in its decisions. And the term collateral review has been used by this Court, certainly when referring to Federal 2255 applications as those type of independent civil inquiries testing the validity of a conviction. But, Mr. Mr. Weissman, the the phrase is post-conviction or other or other collateral review. And certainly the Rule 2535 motion is post-conviction. So it's post-conviction. It's not direct review. Uh, Why isn't that dispositive? Well, I think both parties are in agreement, Your Honor, that the post-conviction review is a part, parcel of the other collateral review. That's not well, or usually means in something in addition. Yes, but it's, you, respectfully, Your Honor, it is or other collateral review. And the or other, and I think both parties are in agreement as to this, or other embraces. The state post-conviction review must also be, quote, unquote, collateral review. Also, I think importantly, it would be anomalous in a tolling provision in which we're talking about the direct appeal already having been concluded to embrace things that don't file, that, that don't, that come prior to the direct appeal. This is a tolling provision. Obviously, 2244 D1 speaks about the finality of a state court judgment of conviction. At that point, obviously. Can you go back to what you just said? You said prior to the, I thought the Rule 35 motion is made after the conviction. Well, it can be made, it can be made prior to the, when the conviction becomes final. For example, it can be made within 120 days of the imposition of sentence, or it can be made with 120 days after the affirmance of the conviction on direct appeal of the Rhode Supreme Court. So it can be made prior to when the conviction becomes, quote-unquote, final. But isn't that true regardless whether the Rule 35 motion seeks legal relief or discretionary relief alone? That both can be made prior to the finality of the judgment? That is true, Your Honor. And, and, and if I understand your argument, your argument is that Rule 35 motions that seek legal review uh, do fall within the 2244 D2 language. It's just that Rule 35 motions that seek discretionary relief do not. Well, I'm not sure we can see to that point, Your Honor. I think clearly we're all in agreement that post-conviction vehicles and habeas vehicles, which obviously all traditionally occur after the direct appeal has been concluded, obviously qualify as what this Court's and everybody we would suggest recognizes, quote-unquote, collateral review. In terms of a Rule 35 motion that says, for example, the sentence is outside of the, outside of the proper boundaries, it's unlawful as a matter of law, I don't think we've actually conceded uh, before this Court that that would qualify. But certainly this Court. I permit a, ch- uh, 
a, a challenge for a federal violation? You've given an example of an illegal sentence that you think is discretionary. Am I correct? Not but does Rule 35A permit a legal challenge of the kind that Justice Kagan was asking? Correct. Our Rule 35 contains within the same provision a challenge to the legality of the sentence, to the manner in which it was imposed. Right. Let's assume a pure legal challenge. A pure legal challenge, correct. Would Rule 35A be other collateral relief as would, designated by the statute? It, we would suggest that this Court doesn't have to answer that question here. There are good arguments why it would not, again, because in a tolling provision that speaks about collateral review, and again, 2255. So explain again why you don't think this is collateral. Well, certainly when all you're doing, as the First Circuit recognizes, is making a pure plea for leniency, sentence leniency. You're not. No, no, no. Why is Rule 35, assuming it's an illegal, a challenge to an illegal sentence on a legal ground? Well, it could why? be argued. It could why be would it not be collateral review? Well, um, it could be argued that we're talking about vehicles that challenge the validity of a judgment that has already survived scrutiny under direct review. And a Rule 35 vehicle, even one that raises a legal challenge in a tolling provision, simply will not begin to run at that point. I don't, I don't understand your argument at all. It seems to me the phrase uh, post-conviction or other collateral review means post-conviction collateral review or pre-conviction collateral review. Isn't, isn't that what, what is added? Post-conviction or other. Uh, what's other from post-conviction? I guess it would be pre-conviction, wouldn't it? Well, we would suggest, Your Honor, that the collateral review, as explained by this Court, is referring to the difference between collateral review and direct review. And the case in auto. That's fine. And is this direct review? This would not, this is clearly not, this is not in the direct review process. So it's no, collateral it's review? So, that, well, so you lose? This, this Court, though, Your Honor, has said that, speaking about when Congress enacted 2255, simplify the procedure for making a collateral attack on a final judgment entered in a federal criminal case, but it did not purport to modify the distinction, again, between collateral review and direct review. I, I would think that if, if there's anything to the point you're making, it, it, it hinges not on the post-conviction or other collateral phrase, but rather on the word review. I suppose it could be argued that you're not reviewing the judgment if you're asking for mercy. Whether the judgment was good or bad, you're, you're asking for mercy. And, and I would, you know, perhaps it's not review. Is, is that your point? Well, we go forward and use that to even, even, we would suggest, Your Honor, even more strongly that the phrase collateral review, as that phrase has been used by this Court consistently, recognizes that this is a procedure that occurs after the completion well, it's only of the because all the process. cases we've had involve that. We've never had a case like this before. So in, in all those other cases, we, we've used the natural term collateral review. That doesn't mean it couldn't apply to this. It just means we've never had occasion to inquire whether it applies to this. What, Your Honor, respectfully, in State versus Adonisio itself, it contrasted the Rule 35 motion, for example. Many jurisdictions, including obviously the federal courts, had this very almost exact Rule 35 type proceeding. It has never been referred to. It has never been understood 
thousands of cases, collateral review, always have been understood as a sort of a, a quasi-civil inquiry after the — Mr. Weisman, I, th- I think that that's not right, that the uh, — as you say, that the Rule 35 motion that Rhode Island has is based on the Federal Rule 35 motion that existed prior to 1987, and that on a couple of occasions this Court talked about that prior Federal Rule 35 as collateral review. Am I wrong about that? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Uh, U.S. v. Robinson, Barton v. United States. I might be wrong about it. We don't believe it ever referred to a sentence, a plea for sentence leniency, Your Honor. No. Not, not, not as a plea, a pure plea for leniency under Rule 35. And the current federal rule yes. provides for its Rule 35 also, but it doesn't have the pure leniency. That, that's Rhode Island. That's correct, correct, Your Honor. We're just speaking about the pre-1987 guidelines rule. What would you say? Let, let's assume that the, we adopt your formulation generally. Uh, that it has to be for legal error. Collateral review has to be for legal error, and we could even add what the Ninth Circuit has found that it has to be by a court in order to avoid clemency, uh, parole review boards, and so forth. I don't see why you don't lose anyway, because the allegation here, the complaint, the argument may be that there was an abuse of discretion. And if there's an abuse of discretion, that is a legal ground to set aside the the sentence. I think, Your Honor, we have to differentiate between a legal ground and the vehicle. Again, the vehicle, the reduction, the plea for leniency vehicle, it's not a legal vehicle. It's simply, I think, as the Coley panel recognized. Well, it's, it's a motion made in a court, reviewable by the appellate courts of the state. Well, but what is it's a little what, odd to say that that's not legal if, if an abuse of discretion standard is, is something we're quite familiar with in the law. We've never thought of that as being somehow extra legal. Well, to the extent it's abuse of discretion, it's really shorthand for the appellate court takes a look if the sentence is within the proper bounds. And if there was, quote, some justification for the imposition of the sentence, then it's affirmed. And just like and if the, there's no justification, what are they? If there's no justification, I mean, it, I, I can say it hasn't happened so far in, in our state. And I, I think, you know, I don't know what, what happens in other states, but essentially that's all the inquiry is. They take a look at the sentence. It's within the legal bounds. The filing of the motion itself, as the pre-87 guidelines, presumes the validity of the conviction and sentence, and it simply says. Give me a second chance. Take a second look. Look at the offender. Look at the characteristics. Look at what are, are those different than the characteristics that the sentencing judge looks at in the first instance? They could be the same. They could be other. There is a wide. In other words, how these? You've obviously seen a lot of these, and I haven't seen any. But I mean, do the Rule 35 motions typically say? Do they typically concede the legal validity of the sentence, and then simply say what? I mean, I assume the sentencing is, is completely open and you can put in anything at all, like the, 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 the deprived childhood, the, the unique situation, the age, whatever. In what sense is Rule 35 different from the arguments that are made at sentencing? It's not much different at all, Your Honor. It is essentially the same. It is, it is, it is simply That's bad for you, isn't it? I mean, for the very point that Justice Kennedy was raising. If it's the same sort of arguments that you get to raise as a legal matter prior to the imposition of sentencing, why should they not be considered legal matters when they're raised under Rule 35? Because we don't believe they are legal matters, Your Honor. What they're asking for is sentence leniency based on 
pure factual matters, like, as you indicated, Your Honor, Chief Justice, the history of the individual, the various um, Are those issues that can be — that are typically raised on direct direct review? No, they're not, Your Honor. We have um, a procedure whereby generally sentence reduction and sentencing issues must be raised pursuant to Rule 35. Could Do you quarrel with a statement in Malacone, a Rhode Island 2000 decision that says, we will interfere with the trial court's discretion vis-a-vis sentencing only in rare instances where the trial justice has imposed a sentence that is without justification and is grossly disparate from the other sentences generally imposed for similar offenses. No. Is that the review standard? Correct. Correct. What that you- is the standard of review. Yes. Correct? So please explain to me why that is not what Justice Kennedy described as a review for abuse of discretion and why a review for abuse of discretion is not a legal challenge. Well, what we suggest is it's the abuse of discretion that, that it's talking about is if there's no justification. They look Again, they look at the sentence, and if there's no justification for it, then it will be an abuse of discretion. If there's some justification, and again, it hasn't happened, if, if, there's some, if the sentence is within the legal limits and there's some justification for it, it will be affirmed. I, I, but, I'm sorry. Am I misunderstanding you? Are you saying that the Rhode Island appellate courts never change a sentence under Rule 35? We have or, or are you saying that they do find some lack of justification no. in some sentence? What we're, what we're saying, Your Honor, is if there's some justification for it and if it's within the legal sentencing bounds, the denial of the Rule 35 motion is affirmed, and that happens all the time. Well, then, then I think you're saying that, uh, it only gets reversed for abuse of discretion, right? We're, we're, and we're, that's a legal ground, it seems to me. And I don't know how you can say that that's a plea for leniency. It's a plea that, that the sentencing court abused its discretion and should have given a lesser sentence. How is that leniency? That's abuse of discretion. Because the inquiry is simply, I understand the words abuse of discretion to use, but the no justification and manifestly excessive standard simply as the cases explicate, looks at the sentence, if it's legal, and if there's some justification for it, the appeal is denied. You know, I don't want to have to figure this out case by case, or even jurisdiction by jurisdiction, as to whether it's a abuse of discretion review or leniency review or this or that. And that, uh, that makes me inclined to say uh, we should treat your Rule 35 as, uh, as coming within the uh, the tolling provision. So we, we don't have to grapple with, with I mean, you, I, I would, I'm not having very yeah. much success understanding yeah. the distinction that you're telling me. I don't so, want to have to do this for 50 states. I understand, but certainly, Your Honor, just, just, just using the formulation that everything that's filed in the state court post the judgment of conviction qualifies, would certainly be an odd way for Congress to have expressed can, that. Can you read the, the relevant provision of the Rule 35? I mean, there, there are two categories, the ones that involve legal challenges, at least as I read the rule. Um, yes. Just read yes. the relevant part of it, Rule 35. Yes, certainly, Your Honor. Uh, the Court may correct an illegal sentence at any time, period. The Court may correct the sentence imposed in an illegal manner, and it may reduce any sentence when a motion is filed within 120 days after the sentence is imposed or within 
120 days after the receipt by the court of a mandate. So you're talking about reducing it? We're, we're, we're talking this case involved only a motion to reduce sentence. And certainly the policy considerations for what Congress would have intended. Mr. Westman, I'm sorry, before you talk about policy, so this motion to reduce sentence is, is very short. It just says um, uh, that uh, the man prays that the sentence imposed with respect to the above matter be reduced in accordance with the provisions of Rule 35. Would it make a difference to you if it said he prays that the sentence imposed, uh, it's, he prays that the illegal sentence imposed with respect to the above matter be reduced in accordance with provisions of Rule 35? Might, if he had put in that word illegal, might, would that have made the difference? It might, Your Honor. And, and under the, our system, it might, that might have been characterized not as a sentence reduction provision, sentence reduction vehicle, but as an illegal motion to correct an illegal sentence or challenging the sentence. So, but that does suggest the difficulty that Justice Scalia raises is that we're going to have to look at the particular rule of the state, we're going to have to look at the particular motion, we're going to look at any, we're going to have to look at any state law regarding how motions are construed, and this is going to be a very difficult determination. Sure. If I could just uh, uh, address that, Your Honor. The the problem is, it's simply because uh, statute of limitations is an affirmative defense. These are matters that already are going to have been concluded in the state court. Before anyone files for 2254, the state's court is going to have a finding. They're going to, this is either going to be a motion for sentence leniency or it's going to be a motion to correct an illegal sentence. These matters, and they have to be pled by the state as well. So when, it, when an applicant goes to federal court, district court, and files a 2254, if we want to raise the affirmative defense of the time bar, which will save the federal court a lot of time, obviously, because there is no case at all. And if we can contrast it with exhaustion, for example, which is this court obviously is familiar with, presents very complicated questions of whether, you know, state procedures were exhausted and claims were exhausted. This is very straightforward. If somebody raises a motion which challenges the legality of the sentence, it will be characterized in state court in the run of the mind cases as a uh, So a petitioner in the future in Rhode Island should file a petition that says, I'm filing a motion pursuant to 35A for an illegal sentence. Make something up. Right. Or for leniency. And then are district courts supposed to figure out whether the legal challenge was frivolous or not or had a basis in law or fact and then decide whether they would toll or not toll based on that now side trial on What's an illegal sentence and what's just a plea for leniency? Well, That's what you're proposing. Well, we suggest actually it's very straightforward, Your Honor. If, if somebody captions their document, you know, motion for sentence, for sentence reduction and motion to correct an illegal sentence, that's not this case, obviously, because then — So if what if they say correct the illegal sentence because it was an abuse of discretion? So is the magic words illegal sentence or is the magic words — Abuse of what are the magic words? Well, it may not so much be your magic words, but it's what the, as this court has said, it's what the substance of the motion seeks. And that will already have been determined in state court. Either. Either your victory will give you absolutely nothing, or you have truly stupid defendant lawyers in Rhode Island. (laughs) I mean, why would anybody not caption the, uh, (laughs) the 35 motion that way? Because What's to lose? You say it doesn't matter if your your claim of an illegal sentence is uh, is frivolous or not. What's to lose? Because, Your Honor, they actually want to reduce their sentence. 
It's not, we don't suggest it's not a matter of playing games. They, you know, they, they feel they're sentenced for 30 years, and maybe they want 20 years. And if they want to challenge the gout of the sentence, they recognize the established collateral attack vehicles. You know, there's another argument that you could make other than the one that you've been pressing, which is that collateral review means something other than a step in the criminal case. But you, you've chosen not to make that. Is that correct? Well, we've spoken about the word collateral review as embracing a case that's already upon looking a proceeding that occurs after the finality of the judgment, which obviously includes this Court's denial of cert or the time. No, but you, you've said that this can be done before finality. I thought I, 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 no, I'm sure you said that earlier, that, that this motion can be made before the judgment is final. Didn't you say that? It can. It certainly can, Your Honor. I'm, and but we would suggest that's not what you just said. You no. just said is after the finality. Which is it? We would suggest, Your Honor, that that furthers our, our argument. A Rule 35 motion is not collateral review because it is not a motion. You could say even in a legal sense motion. It's not a motion that occurs after the judgment becomes final. And we're looking at a tolling provision. And the congressional intent tolling provision was finality and exhaustion of state remedies. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I understand that. There's nothing in this rule that bars a litigant from filing after the conviction is final. They have 120, 120 days. days. It can be filed after the sentence is imposed, 120 days of that date, or 120 days after the conviction becomes final. And we suggest that the term collateral review embraces, as Justice Alito indicated, sort of that concept that, obviously, in a tolling provision, it begins to run when the conviction becomes final. Justice Scalia is suggesting that, um, that perhaps the, the leniency review is, is not review of the conviction or sentence. But you didn't, you didn't do anything with that. You didn't argue that, that the kind of review that's involved with leniency is really not review of the sentence for legal error. It's clearly not you know, correct. I think as everybody recognizes, the Coley panel and the respondents in this case as well characterize this Rule 35 proceeding as sort of a part distinct away from the underlying case. And that's undoubtedly true in the sense that it's not, we were not, it's not part of the direct review process. It's, 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 it's clearly not. But that doesn't mean it's collateral review. It's not either or. It can be. So what, is it something in between? It's not direct and it's not collateral. It's, a, it's neither fish nor fowl, Your Honor. I mean, simply because it's not part of the direct review process, doesn't mean that it's, quote, our argument would be collateral review, because, again, collateral review has this sort of meaning in the law, using this Court's decisions, using this Court's cases, referring to a post-judgment vehicle in which fundamental jurisdictional and other type of errors can be raised. What I guess we need a new adjective, then, because I've always thought that there are two kinds of review, direct and collateral. You say there's a, uh, a tertium quid. What do you want us to call that? Maybe. Uh, well, I don't know that it needs to be called anything, Your Honor. I think the only question — I think it maybe doesn't need to be called anything because it doesn't exist. I, I, I can't imagine well, anything that isn't it's an interesting it's certainly, it's certainly an interesting vehicle because it can be filed prior to the finality of the judgment and it can be filed, and it can be filed after the judgment becomes final. And again, going, going back to the policies, with 2244-D2, very clearly, two big policies again are finality, which obviously promotes these cases would not be in federal court if they were time-barred, and exhaustion of state remedies. To have a motion that seeks leniency only, there's no purpose that could be accomplished by bringing that motion into 
Federal court, and therefore it doesn't serve that purpose. But, Mr. Weisman, that's true also of uh, State habeas claims that are based only on State law. But six circuits have said that 2244-D2 applies to those claims. Are you contesting that? We're not. But the, but, but the important uh, element there, Your Honor, is that those vehicles can be raised to bring. Those are the vehicles, the collateral review vehicles, through which the states have channeled constitutional jurisdiction and other fundamental claims. The Rule 35 set introduction vehicle doesn't, can't do it, can't do that service. So, sure, you could have a, you could have a habeas, and the only issue, the only claim raised in habeas could be, you know, some violation of, of my state rights, which could be heard in 2054. But right, where the exhaustion policy does exactly. not come into effect. But Congress may have well said, we're not going to be in the business of looking at the individual claims. Look, this is a collateral review vehicle. This vehicle is a recognized vehicle for bringing, for channeling in these claims. So that's going to toll. But this other vehicle, this Rule 35 sentence reduction vehicle, it can never be used for a claim that could go to federal court. It's pointless. I mean, it wouldn't serve the purpose. And, of course, it would undermine the state's interest in getting the state prisoners into federal court within one year. I'll rest of my time, if that's okay, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Mr. Chief. Ms. Mister. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The First Circuit here correctly held that Khalil Coley's motion for a reduction of sentence under Rhode Island Rule 35 was an application for state post-conviction or other collateral review with respect to the pertinent judgment or claim. As such, it told EDPA's one-year limitation period, and Mr. Coley's petition was timely filed. We look to the common usage and ordinary understanding of the words of the tolling provision in the context of the statute. Collateral review is a proceeding occurring after final judgment that could affect that judgment. Am I correct that you think post-conviction or other collateral review means anything that occurs after the conclusion of direct review? Yes, for purposes of the tolling provision. And what does the phrase or other collateral review add? Why, why wouldn't Congress just say post-conviction review? In Duncan, this Court talked about the possibility of civil commitment or uh, contempt in uh, custody that could be part of a Rule 2254 proceeding and that that would not be post-conviction. So that post-conviction is a form of collateral review but is not the only form. In Duncan, the Court also discussed the fact that many states may call what other states call post-conviction review something else, and that that would also then be collateral. The collateral is just a, a, an umbrella that encompasses post-conviction and other forms of review after a judgment. Why, why don't you just call your motion a motion to correct uh, an illegal sentence? Then we wouldn't have any dispute here, I gather. Uh, under the state's theory, there would not be. I did not file this motion. Right. Well, you're not one of the stupid lawyers that we were worried about before. <laughs> I may be in other respects, Your Honor, but not this one. But I'm sure of that. But you do think that if you had, if you or whoever files these motions had simply said that, there would be no problem, right? From the state's perspective, I don't think that there's a problem with omitting the word illegal. Because well, it's because you want something other than legal review, right? You want to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You've got plenty of avenues to correct the illegality of the sentence. 
But this is something different, right? This is to not correct. You admit it's illegal, but you say, but it should still be reduced for a lot of reasons. Yes, it is a request for the Court to, to review, to take a second look, to re-examine the sentence to determine whether or not it was unduly severe at the time that it was imposed. You're asking the Court to, to take a second look either based on factors that were submitted at sentencing or additional information. That you can raise all of, those disp- all of those claims under the normal state collateral post-conviction, state habeas, all those other things, right? You can raise those issues under the post-conviction review. You can also raise mm-hmm. them. In, in Rhode Island, there is a provision of the post-conviction review uh, statute that speaks of the any facts that would require a new proceeding in the interests of justice. So I, I guess I'm having trouble. You can — the various grounds on which the sentence should have been lower than it was — including the fact that setting the sentence at that level was an abuse of discretion. You obviously can raise those at sentencing, and you can raise those on direct review, right? In Rhode Island, you cannot challenge your sentence on direct review. Can you challenge it on in state habeas? You challenge it by way of the Rule 35 motion. That's the only it's vehicle the normal, you have. It's the only vehicle you have for challenging the sentence. That's the normal vehicle that is used for challenging the sentence. Um, I believe that you could also encompass it in a motion for post-conviction relief, which is the kind of umbrella Rhode Island procedure for raising. So after a conviction in the state, if there's an appeal with a number on on direct review uh, with a number of issues of improperly admitted evidence and so forth, uh, you, the lawyers can't or add, and in addition, he was sentenced under the wrong provision. He was given five years too many because the judge cited the wrong provision. You can't say that on direct review? Under my understanding of the Rhode Island Supreme Court decisions, the answer to that is no. You can challenge only the conviction, not the sentence on direct review? I believe that that is the holding of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. Do you, in what? Do, you, do you agree that Rule 35 is not something that the prisoner must exhaust before seeking federal habeas? Exhaustion for federal habeas is limited to exhaustion of the claims that are going to be presented in the federal habeas petition. And since a the denial of a request for a sentence reduction on the grounds of abuse of discretion is not going to be a claim that is uh, cognizable in federal habeas corpus jurisdiction, then you would not need to exhaust it. But isn't the whole purpose of allowing tolling of the one-year federal statute the purpose to give the petitioner an opportunity to exhaust what he must exhaust? Exhaustion is one of the purposes of the tolling provision, but this Court has recognized that EDPA's purpose uh, was to further the principles of comity and finality in federalism and had a clear purpose of encouraging litigants to pursue claims in state court prior to seeking federal review. 
So tying the tolling provision to state applications uh, shows congressional concern for comedy, which at its core is a request — is a respect for the state processes that are used in reviewing the claims of state prisoners. I, I may have asked this already, but it seems unusual to me, so I want to make sure of the, the answer. You, you're con, you have a client who's convicted of a particular offense that results in a sentence of, what, zero to five years, okay? And the judge, in imposing the sentence, engages in racial discrimination. It turns out that he sentences African-Americans to five years and, and uh, uh, Caucasian defendants to two years. That, you're telling me, is a claim that you cannot raise on direct review or on state, in state habeas? It would be raised in the State Rule 35 motion to correct. Well, you say it would be raised. Are you saying it can only be raised under Rule 35? It could be raised under the State Post-Conviction Review proceedings as well. Well, that's what I would have thought. So Rule 35 is not the only vehicle for challenging uh, a sentence. No. Your adversary said the contrary, and I was — you're flip-flopping. Can this be brought on a direct appeal or not? No, an not illegal on, sentence. Not on direct appeal. So, what did you mean when you answered the Chief Justice that it could be brought in collateral proceedings? Well, Rule 35 is a collateral proceeding. That's it, it, just so that your adversary, when he gets up on rebuttal, can confirm or not this point. Any challenge to an illegal sentence has to be brought first in a Rule 35a motion, regardless of what the grounds of illegality are. Yes, or perhaps in a motion for post-conviction relief under Section 10-9.1. Could I return to the question Justice Ginsburg asked a couple of minutes ago? We have, let's say we have a case in which uh, a uh, defendant convicted in state court has some exhausted federal claims that this defendant wants to raise in a federal habeas also files a motion seeking a, a reduction of sentence based purely on a request for leniency, a uh, sentence within the range prescribed by the statute. What purpose is served by tolling the time to file the federal habeas during the pendency of this request for leniency in the state court? And you say comedy, but in, in concrete practical terms, what purpose is served? A prisoner who receives adequate relief in the state court through whatever vehicle may choose not to pursue a now, in your experience do, does that happen a lot? You have somebody who's sentenced to a five year sentence and that's within the range uh, also has legal challenges that would result in uh, no conviction, no time whatsoever, and no criminal conviction. Uh, that person decides to give up on the legal challenge because the five-year sentence might be reduced to three or two or one? I would say that would be unlikely, but there are many federal habeas cases that um, are raise questions of, for example, ineffective assistance of counsel at sentencing. A state resolution that reduces the sentence would obviate the need for a federal habeas petition in that context. If you, if, if you look at um, 
2255. That's the, the federal post-conviction review. And it also has a one-year statute of limitations. That limitation would not be told for a federal Rule 35 motion. So why should it be told for state? 2255, Justice Ginsburg, has no tolling provision at all. And the reason for that may perhaps be the respect for comedy that Congress recognized when you are addressing a 2254 uh, petition filed by a state prisoner. I think, uh, Ms. Meisner, the amicus brief in this case asserted that in Rhode Island or in other states with a rule like this, many uh, judges sit on these Rule 35 motions. They just let them stay pending for a considerable period of time in order to retain some um, uh, ability to modify the sentence if and when they feel like doing so. Is that your understanding of what happens to these motions, that they just sit, that they're not denied? I don't practice in Rhode Island, but in this case, the Rule 35 did not sit. It was resolved by the trial court within three months. Uh, The issue, the potential for abuse from sitting on motions is not limited to a Rhode Island Rule 35. It's not a peculiar concern. Well, I guess the the question, and um, I'm sorry if I've cut you off, is not that this is a question of abuse, that it may be a good thing. The idea is you've got a motion for reduction of sentence because of mercy, and the judge might say, well, I'm inclined to exercise mercy if you come out of the rehab program in a good way. If it turns out after the first several months you're a model prisoner, in other words, it's not a question of abuse. It's a good thing. And if we, if we start saying that the uh, time for federal habeas is told, judges might be inclined uh, uh, not to exercise such charity based on um, uh, the prisoner's conduct after conviction. Well, the Rule 35 also provides that the decision must be made within a reasonable time. 120 days, right? No, 120 days is the time frame for, for in filing. which the motion much, must be filed. Right. The rule also provides that it must be decided, with resolved within a reasonable time. So there is a, a limitation in, in that respect. What, we have any indication in the case law of what a reasonable time consists of? I have not found any Rhode Island cases discussing right. that particular question. Can you go back for a second? Imagine a, a, a defendant is convicted of robbery and he's sentenced to 10 years. He thinks there is an error in my conviction of a legal nature, and he thinks there is another error in my conviction, in my sentence of a legal nature. Now, I take it in Rhode Island he files an appeal to consider the first. Yes. And as to the second, he files a Rule 35 motion. That's my understanding of what I'm And saying. when does he file the Rule 35 motion? Because it says at any time. No, a Rule 35 motion must be filed within 120 days. No, it doesn't days. say that. It says a court may correct an illegal sentence at any time. I'm talking I'm about nothing to do with mercy. I want to know how it works. He says there's a legal error in my sentence. When does he, how does he get that corrected? 
a defendant would have an interest in getting it. I'm not, I'm not, don't take what I have as my view. I just want the fact. I'm asking you a fact. When, how, and when does the person correct the legal error in his sentence? He could correct it by filing the motion at any time and. Where? In the trial court. And if the trial court says no, what does he do? He appeals. Fine. Okay. So now we have two appeals. One is from the judgment of conviction. Another is from the judgment imposing the sentence. Now, the Federal statute says a one-year period of limitation shall apply from the date on which the judgment became final. Correct? Yes. Okay. When is the date on which the judgment of the sentence became final? If both appeals are pending at the same time, the practice would be to consolidate them so you would have a ruling from the Rhode Island Supreme Court. And if they are not appealing, they are not, they are not at the same time, then what? Then the judgment <coughs> would become final when the Rhode Island Supreme Court affirmed the conviction and either this Court. Why not the sentence? You may have two times. In, in April, they, they can affirm the conviction. In June, they affirm the sentence. Do those two months, uh, it does the date on which the judgment became final by conclusion of direct review, does that run from April or from June? I would say June. June. Okay. Now, suppose he doesn't, suppose that, uh, there were no appeal, uh, from the, um, I see. Our problem is that there is no appeal from the judgment, from the sentence, where he asks for correction as a matter of mercy and not law. There may be an appeal. There may be? From such, from the denial of a Rule 35. What I'm trying to figure out is why, if you're willing to call for purposes of one, the one-year statute begins to run from the time the direct appeal becomes final. Why is it a direct appeal of a sentence where you appealed a matter of law and it isn't a direct appeal of a sentence where you asked for mercy? It's the same rule. It's the same procedure. It, the Rule 35. This would help you just as much, I imagine. I'm just trying to get it straightened in my mind. Rhode Island's manner of addressing the Rule 35 seems to be uh, somewhat unusual in terms of I know. You see, my basic question is why, look, two appeals, one judgment, one sentence, okay? January, June, you're prepared to say the one-year statute does not begin to, want rule, to run until June. Fine. The Rule 35 motion, when you took an appeal, became final for purposes of the Federal habeas statute in June. So why doesn't the Rule 35 motion become final under 1A of the habeas statute whenever that's decided finally? Why is it collateral at all? Why isn't it direct, just as your first one was direct? If the Rule 35 motion is filed after the Rhode Island Supreme Court 
affirms the judgment with Wait a minute, a judgment of what? Judgment, judgment of conviction or judgment of sentence? Judgment of conviction. Okay. The rule 30 no same reason that it doesn't become final uh, when you haven't appealed your sentence yet or when they haven't they didn't consolidate. I, I'm quite confused, as you see, as to how this all works in Rhode Island. I, Rhode Island, I used to be on the First Circuit. I know it has some special ways of doing things uh, that are sometimes different, and, and uh, this is different. It is, Justice Breyer, and I have not seen any Rhode Island cases addressing a Rule 35 motion that was not filed after the judgment of conviction had been affirmed in the context of looking for a discretionary There must be in Rhode Island some complaints about the sentence. In terms of a motion for reduction uh, for leniency, Both. I, I have not seen any pre, uh, pre-judgment, pre Rhode Island Supreme Court resolutions. What would happen if uh, the statutory maximum for an offense in Rhode Island is five years and the sentencing judge imposes a sentence of ten years and the defense attorney at that time says, well, you've, you can't do that. That's more than the statutory maximum and the judge goes ahead with it and then an appeal is taken. You're saying that the appellate court in Rhode Island would not entertain that argument? They would say, you have to go back and make a Rule 35 motion in the trial court. And maybe that's the procedure. It seems odd. But is that it? That is what the Rhode Island Supreme Court has said. Is there a citation for that that you have? I do not have that with me. Could I return you to something more basic? Do you think the term collateral review is a, term, a legal term of art, or is it a term that we, can, we should interpret simply by looking up the word collateral in a dictionary? Well, this Court has discussed the — has used the term collateral review in a, a number of, of different contexts. Uh, in civil cases, in habeas cases, uh, in, 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 the, in the manner of distinguishing between direct review and, and something that is outside direct review. But isn't, if I look up collateral attack in Black's Law Dictionary, won't I find a definition there and won't it tell me that this is something other than the, the proceeding, this is an attack on a judgment outside of the proceeding that led to the entry of that judgment. Isn't that what the term generally means? Uh, collateral generally means supplementary, in, as defined in blacks, and collateral attack in blacks is defined as an attack on a judgment in a proceeding other than direct appeal. Right. But the Rule 35 motion in Rhode Island is not part of a direct appeal. It is a separate But it's part of the case. It is part of the case, Justice Alito, but a a motion for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence, which 
is viewed as collateral is also part of well, what about a, just a, a regular motion for a new trial not based on newly uh, on newly discovered evidence is that collateral or isn't is that part of the the criminal proceeding the motions for new trial a motion for a new trial that has to be filed within 10 or 14 days of the conviction would be part of the direct appeal and therefore would be would not be collateral but a motion for a new trial that is filed after the judgment is affirmed by a court of appeals and the time for cert has passed would be collateral but what's wrong with the argument that nothing that occurs in the criminal case itself is collateral what Congress had in mind when it spoke about collateral review was something like habeas. I'm going to give you an alternative interpretation of this, and, and maybe it's, it's completely wrong, but I, I, you'll tell me why it's wrong. Post-conviction is a term of art. Many states, including Rhode Island, have post-conviction review statutes. So Congress wanted to have that time, the time when those proceedings were told, were, were pending told. But not every state uses that phrase. Not every state uses that term. They have other uh, names for the proceeding. And that's what's meant by other collateral review. Collateral review is a term of art. It's not something that you understand by looking up the word collateral in a dictionary. What's wrong with that? There is no indication that Congress was limiting the use of the term collateral review to a post-conviction legal challenge. Uh, Congress could have said that if it had wished. I'm not saying it has to do with whether it's legal or something else. It has to do with whether it's in the criminal case or not in the criminal case. Traditionally, motions that are filed, uh, motions for new trial uh, are maybe filed after the judgment has been affirmed and have been viewed by the courts as collateral, as collateral review. So there is, the tradition doesn't limit the use of the term collateral review to a proceeding that is completely separate and apart. Indeed, a 2255, while it may be separately filed, is then consolidated with the original proceeding, and there's an entry in the docket, you shall not file any more uh, pleadings in that separate case. It all goes back to the original case, the 2255, which is collateral, is heard by the trial court. Uh, so. There is a um, — there is no reason to assume that Congress was limiting collateral review to something outside of the original proceeding. Well, the 2255 is, is in the original case, but it's a habeas substitute. It was adopted by Congress as a substitute for habeas. Isn't that right? Yes. Do you think that a petition for clemency that's presented to the governor would toll the limitations period? No, I do not, Justice Why, why is that different? 
Because 2244D2 is tolling an application for review with respect to the pertinent judgment or claim. And a, an application for clemency doesn't produce any change in the judgment that is rendered by the court. It's not a request that is related to the legal reasoning behind a judgment, doesn't challenge the basis for the judgment, and it's an executive branch function in, in some cases with advice and consent of a legislative body, and there's no judicial review. So it is well, — That may be right, but I don't think that's the reason. I, 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 I thought we had held that the word filed in the petition means filed in a court, not filed with the governor. It's, it's the word filed in, in the tolling provision that, uh, that does the work. I would agree. You think it doesn't matter that, I mean, Rule 35 motion is a motion made in the original criminal proceeding, not to the side of it, so it isn't a collateral attack is ordinarily another proceeding to the side of the main proceeding. But the Rule 35 motion is filed in the criminal proceeding itself. Yes, it is, Justice Ginsburg, as is a Rule 33 motion for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence, which courts have held to be collateral. It's a question of, of when these motions are filed that makes them collateral. They are not part of the direct review process. So if this was, uh, if this motion had been filed before judgment, which can happen before the judgment is final, uh, then there would be no tolling. Tolling would not come into, into play until after the judgment has become final. If this has been addressed and resolved so prior question, to, it would have so to be So the answer is yes. Tolling. This motion, which can be filed either before or after judgment, uh, it, it, the time is told if it's made after the judgment, but not yes. if it's made before. There seems to be a, some confusion. Judgment is rendered before this motion is made. There's a conviction and there's a sentence, right? Yes. So there's a judgment rendered. That's different from whether the judgment is final in a federal sense. It's final as far as the state is concerned because a judgment was rendered, correct? Well, the judgment would become final as far as the state is concerned if on appeal, if there is an appeal and the Rhode Island but Supreme Court If there's Court no appeal, confirmed. it was final the day it was rendered as yes. far as the state is concerned. If there's an appeal, then it may undo that, correct? Yes. Um, so there is a judgment, and this is always post-judgment. Yes. Well, well, that, that's not what uh, that's not what the state says. Anyway, the state says, and and I think the the way thirty five reads, it doesn't have to be filed after judgment. It has to be filed within one hundred and twenty one days after the entry. That's right. It can't be filed any later than that, but it doesn't say that it can't be filed before judgment. It would have to be filed after the sentence is imposed. That's right. And the sentence... When does it, when does it become final? When does the... Even at the trial court level, when does it become final? 
would say that the, it becomes final when it is imposed. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Weissman, you have six minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just to, I'll begin, if I could just clarify regarding the scope of Rule 35. The reporter's notes to Rule 35 do make it very clear that an illegal sentence is one which has been imposed after a valid conviction but is not authorized under law. It includes, e.g., a sentence in excess of that provided by statute, imposition of an unauthorized form of punishment, a judgment that does not conform to the oral sentence. And our Supreme Court has gone on to explain this provision by saying, we have never, we have never countenanced the challenge to the constitutionality of a penal statute in the context of a Rule 35 motion. Nor have we declared that a sentence imposed pursuant to an unconstitutional statute is illegal as contemplated by Rule 35. I'm sorry. I, I, you were speaking so fast I didn't follow you. I'm sorry, just to my Perhaps we can go back to um, the simple question, which is, can a uh, defendant who's been sentenced bring a challenge to a sentence in a direct appeal or not? Or do they have to go by Rule 35A? Although there is dicta and some language where our Supreme Court says, essentially, file challenges to your sentences pursuant to Rule 35, it's clear that only certain types of challenges can be brought in a Rule 35 motion. In the -the run-of-the-mill cases, they have to be brought if there is a appellate record in direct appeal, or most commonly they're brought pursuant to the state's post-conviction relief. All right. So now we get to the point where some can go under 35A, but some can't. Some right. should go on direct appeal. Right. The only ones that are correct under 35A are, again, where the sentence is not authorized by law or is imposed an unauthorized form of punishment or judgment. That right. That's called it's illegal. Correct. Correct. So now it's illegal. And correct. The odd but, thing is, is that you know, that kind of appeal takes place either days or possibly weeks after the defendant may already have appealed his conviction to the higher court. Well, correct. Is that, that right? That normally that's happens. Correct. correct. And, that and what I'm curious about is what happens if the court affirms that uh, sentence, let's say two months after it already affirmed the conviction. Right. And our pers- Which is the judgment pursuant to which it which is the judgment that became final by conclusion of direct review? And our position would be that's not part of the direct review appellate process. Why? That the, the person is not being held in custody pursuant to a judgment of the state court, or at least a relevant judgment, until the sentence has been appealed. Then there's the conclusion of direct review in respect to the judgment in respect to which he is being held in custody. I, I'm just reading the statute, the yes. federal statute. Are you? Your Honor, that could occur at any time. It could occur five or ten years or twenty years later. Exactly. And, and that's con- why I don't, that's why I am confused. I look at the language of the federal statute, and it seems to me that this individual is not being held in custody pursuant to a judgment until that sentence is final. But we and the sentence is final in the lower court, but they say when the sentence is final at the conclusion of direct review in respect to that sentence, which hasn't even taken place yet. Yes, but our point would be, Your Honor, that it doesn't 
move the start of the one-year limitations period. The start of the one-year limitations period, as this Court said in Jimenez versus Quarterman, begins when it begins. It begins when that judgment becomes final, which is 90 days after our Supreme Court affirms the judgment of conviction. Okay. Then you're going to say all appeals in Rhode Island from sentences, all appeals on their lawfulness or their mercy take place under Rule 35, and all of them are collateral. No. What respectfully, what we're going to say is collateral review refers to those, as this Court said in Duncan v. Walker, habeas post-conviction relief vehicles that typically that occur after the conviction has become final. I, I'm totally confused. If this is part of the criminal proceeding, which is your position, that it's not collateral, that it's part of the proceedings, when does this proceeding become final? That, that, becomes that's final. really because you, you're, you're, you're Well, under Jimenez v. Walker, it becomes final when 90 days from when the Supreme Court affirms But if, if the, the Rhode Island Court has told litigants that they can't challenge some portions of an illegal sentence except by way of Rule 35, how can we call the decision on the affirmance of the conviction a final determination of the legality of the sentence, that that's contradictory. Because Congress has decided to pick the date on which the appeal becomes, the conviction becomes final, which always occurs 90 days after the state's well, high that's court. Not, that's not what, the, what it says. Is it, it, it talks about a judgment, and a judgment in, in other terms is usually the conviction and the sentence. Rhode Island, for its own reasons, has separated the two. But yes, but Congress has set four dates on which the conviction becomes final. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.